Hello all, a note on this episode before we begin. We recorded Robert McIntyre again, as promised, and as is tradition with this podcast, the audio was once again really fucked up. Stephen came through okay, but Rob's track is kinda crappy, and my audio was almost incomprehensible. We've done what we can to fix up Robert's audio, and I have re-recorded everything that I said just now in a microphone and added it to the interview in post. This means that my tone of voice might not quite match what was originally said, but all the words are the same. Also, I have a bit of a cold right now, so I don't sound that great either. Like I said, this is a very special episode. We've also put the listener feedback at the beginning of this because the audio for the listener feedback was actually okay. We apologize for how chopped this will all feel, and we hope that next time Robert's on the podcast, there will be some different technical issues rather than audio being bad and or lost. And also, of course, big thanks to our sound engineer, Kyle Moore. Here we go. First, we would like to thank our Patreon supporter, Philip Reynolds. Is that Reynolds? No, that's uh, that's Remond. I thought that was an R and an N, but it's just an M. We'd like to thank our Patreon supporter, Philip Remold, for uh, helping support us and bring this to you. And you really, you people make it worthwhile because, you know, it's nice to know that people care. So thank you. I second everything Enos just said. <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, speaking of uh, supporters, that, that brings up one thing I wanted to dive into. So this episode's going to be coming out on the 17th, which is, uh, or wait, no, um, this episode's going to be coming out on the 14th. Is that right? 17th. Yeah. Um, so this is going to be a few weeks after, but, uh, th- there was some concern, uh, last month in December, which is now, um, when Patreon put out some new fees that were going to fall under the, uh, the donator, the donors instead of the recipients, um, and their their idea was, hey, look, the recipients will get more of your money, and we'll be getting a little more too. Um, and that really upset a lot of people. And uh, we had some people write in, um, specifically uh, Roman and Nick, wrote in to uh, basically say, hey, look, um, sorry that you know to, to withdraw our support, but we can't abide by Patreon doing this. Um, Patreon sent out a letter last week saying that they, or I guess last week from now. Um, a few weeks ago from the release that they are withdrawing that idea because it turns out everybody hated it. So uh, they're not going to be rolling out that fee adjustment, which is great. Um, I appreciate everybody who, you know, under, or what am I trying to say? Um, I am completely understanding that people who, you know, don't want to be dropping extra money and uh, for every, every Patreon that they're doing. So um, or even just the people who were um, against it just on principle, you know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's another big part. And uh, so there were some people asking if we were going to be setting up a PayPal or something, which I was going to do. Um, but I think that since Patreon is uh, turning out to have changed their minds on this, that it's no longer worth it to set up a, a uh, PayPal account for this right now. But that'll probably be coming down the pike, too, because why not? So can I just say that I was I was literally surprised, like I had to update my model of the world upon learning that Patreon was pulling back and decided not to do that anymore because like i've gotten so used to 
people just not giving a fuck, you know? Uh, I, oh, you guys hate that? Well, tough shit. Yeah. Um, so when when everyone started complaining and writing and tweeting, and I was like, well, no one fucking cares anyway. They're just going to do what they want to do. They have power and money, and we don't matter. And then, like, they changed their policy. And I was like, that is nuts. It just pushes me slightly more in the libertarian direction when, like, I see corporations actually listening to people and changing things. Because I like, no fucking way the government would pay attention to that kind of shit. Right. Well, I think part of it is that Patreon has competitors, right? So, uh, it's that is the uh, the one blessing of the free market. Well, I guess not the one, but it is a blessing of the free market in that hey, we've got competition. We can't be you know we can't unilaterally be fucking our customers because they'll just go somewhere else. So um, yeah, that's pretty cool. Speaking of being unilaterally fucked by uh, big businesses, the FCC vote happened and didn't work out, or rather worked out the way everyone thought it was going to, and uh, net neutrality is revoked. Um, I didn't do a lot more homework since you and I last talked about it, but I was uh, I was curious if, uh, if you know if you're learning that the fact that like the EFF and the ACLU and everybody in organizations organizations like that were worried about this this vote, if that updated your model at all of from what you read? Well, a little bit in that I um, I, I was significantly less confident in my position afterwards but i i went to the uh, eff ama that you linked me and i didn't see them actually say all that much of substance the fact that they're against it though does speak a lot um to me because i trust that organization i think they do good work so uh, i'm not as confident as i was before but i still think that for the most part this is a large overreaction and i don't trust regulations necessarily to get things right uh and and i would much rather see a large competitive market of isps and providers rather than the government coming in and saying hey here's your cool monopoly but you have to follow these rules because the rules well i think we'd all prefer that but that's not really what's happening right well it's 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 not not happening. There's first of all, wireless keeps getting better, and there's times where I go to um, my cell network instead of my internet when I want reliability, which is the exact opposite of how things were five, ten years ago. So sure. yes, yeah, the cell networks keep getting better. There's 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 in most of the most of the populace has more than one option, and they are starting to have to change a little bit because of that. So. I, I think that there is some competition and that having less of the regulation would make it easier for small people to get in. Right on. Well, I'm, I'm curious about that, too. Uh, I, I wanted you to send me the stuff that you read because uh, we talked about it last time. You said you read some stuff that persuaded you that way, and I didn't get a chance to look at it yet. So i got to take a look. Oh, did I send you that? I don't think so. Okay, I'll send it to you after we get off the, uh, off the Skype here. And uh, yes, and, and I'll send it to you because I was going to link it all in our episode when it goes just before it goes up on Wednesday anyway. Cool. That reminds me, I am only about a half hour into it, uh, but I will be chugging away tonight and tomorrow. So, but let's see. As far as other feedback, um, before we get to listener oh yeah. feedback, can we do host feedback? Yeah, go nuts. Okay. So I have I have some feedback from our last episode with Jenkins from myself because there was there was a number of things that I was. I, I kind of wanted to say, but we didn't have the time to say them. And quite honestly, I hadn't really 
got my head around how I wanted to say it at the moment. Um, when the episode first started, I didn't realize that it was going to be spirituality via drugs, which I sh- probably should have, given that we know Jenkins. And uh, but but it, the one thing, as I was editing the episode, that really stuck out to me as we were talking about this was he said a few times things along the lines of, and here's, here's a direct quote, because I wrote it down, uh, spirituality is not the goal of science. And then uh, someone brought up, I don't remember if it was you or him, but brought up Richard Feynman as sort of the stereotype of the cold, unfeeling scientist. And I wanted to say that I, I think my spirituality is different, which is why I don't quite do the drugs connection with spirituality as much as other people seem to, because in my opinion, I mean, spirituality is not the goal of science maybe, but science is a big part of my spirituality. It is the wonder of exploring the world and seeing how it works and finding out all the little things that make us go and how, just how wondrous and amazing that is and how we as humans can discover this stuff and not only use it to our advantage, but even like know it and understand it. Like can a frog understand this sort of thing? Can, can the process of, 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 um, of a river cutting its way through a continent, understand these things. No, I mean, they're ruled by the physics, but the fact that we can comprehend them and look on the universe and be part of the universe is really very beautiful to me. And so my spirituality is very much science based, which is, I think part of the thing I was going for with, um, with, with saying that, uh, that when someone asked me how could you look at something and think it makes itself uh, instead of attributing it to God, and my my reaction was like, that is that is anti spiritual. That is just childish. The the comprehension of the physical forces that made this is to me a much more spiritual thing. And I think Richard Feynman is actually a great example of that because if you ever see him talking. Oh my God, he's just got this joy for life and for his, his knowledge and his craft. And he loves explaining it and understanding things. And there's just this energy that exudes from him when he's talking even about simple things like the physics of how a, a train car goes down the rails without, you know, rolling off them. He's just so full of wonder and happiness. And that is the sort of thing that I feel when I look at the universe. And so someday I want to do a sort of spirituality science with spirituality episode uh not anytime soon because we've just done two in recent succession but that is more where i get my my wonder in the universe and my feeling of oneness with all things rather than i don't know bullshit talking with other humans or (laughs) (laughs) so i think i think you and i totally agree and i'm not sure how well that came out in the episode but it'll i i'll take trust your your recollection of it over mine since you did the editing on it but um yeah, if he brought up Feynman as an example of a cold, unfeeling scientist, well, that that seems to not drive with anything that I remember from Feynman either. Not uh, necessarily as and, an and example I'm, of it, but like as the stereotype that people would think of a scientist being cold and unfeeling type. Oh well, they chose a bad stereotype then. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree, and I, I mean, I to Jenkins's point, we haven't done the drugs that he's done, so maybe if we did enough of you know DMT or something or. Uh, ate a bag of mushrooms that we could we would ch- totally change our minds and say man all that cool enlightenment and rush we got from comprehending our place in the cosmos that's nothing compared to this trip 
but I, I sort of, I sort of doubt that I, at least from, you know, my pre doing that experience for sure. I think that, uh, Carl Sagan, that was like, you know, we are a way for the cosmos to know itself. And, and, you know, there's the, the dull meaning of that. Like, yeah, we're made of matter. We can look at matter and comprehend it. But that the real Russian meaning to that is like, you know, I guess just that sentence again, but with different emphasis, right? Um, you know, we are, yeah, I mean, we could go on and on about it, but yes, I totally agree. And uh, I think that, you know, that Jenkins and I and, and you were talking about different things. Um, maybe to Jenkins, they're, they're inseparable, but uh, yeah, to me, I think that, you know, it's cool to have a trip on LSD and, and, you know, I feel like I had a valuable experience and I, I don't regret doing it. And I even feel like I had some like interesting, you know, realizations uh, that I, my brain kind of awkwardly spent an afternoon trying to work on when I was uh, tripping. But um, certainly I don't think that at least for me and my experience that there was anything that profound there, nothing like, you know, just, just reflecting on, you know, your shared history, your shared ancestry rather with your, a house plant, right? <laughs> to think that it, literally, if you lined up our parents going back in time, we'd have a same parent. That's insane. So that's pretty cool. Or at least we'd have a, a shared uh, species of parents. Okay, so I'm glad I got that out. Thank you for doing that. <laughs> okay, did you have any uh, listener feedback it sounded like? Real quick, uh, write in here, or a comment on episode 30 of Specs and Omelets, which was our discussion of the uh, minuscule utilon or uh, negative utilon distribution across an unimaginably large number of beings versus one being being tortured. Their their take was that they prefer the large large number of beings uh, suffering a small bearable thing over one unbearable thing uh, because you can bear unbearable things. Um, and yeah, I. I Oh, right. Did I say it wrong? Um, yes, you can you can bear bearable things, but you can't bear unbearable things. Um, and so, yeah, that's true. But I think the, the purpose of the thought experiment was more to not so much to like weigh one ruined life over a trillion, trillion, very minutely inter- or disturbed lives. It was to get your get you thinking about, you know, if that is an actual, if say the dust spec was an actual uh, negative utilon experience a large among that large of a group of, of beings, then how could you possibly weigh that against the maximum number of negative utilons from one being? I think that they sort of missed the point. Does did that make any sense to you? No, that, that makes total sense to me, and that that basically is what the argument boils down to. Uh, the the one unbearable thing is unbearable versus the numbers are higher and I, I don't that's just there's no i don't know if there's a way to resolve that it's just a philosophical difference that some people do not care about the numbers and other people do yeah i agree and it's i mean i'm still sort of pretty undecided on it luckily i'm not standing over a switch to make this decision so well i mean it, it, it I becomes mean, more of a question of how do you program your god and if your god thinks in numbers that's an issue right Luckily, I'm not programming God either, so... <laughs> right. Metastable, who says that uh, I said in one of our earlier episodes uh, that Elon was an early founder of Miri, uh, but I think you got him confused with Peter Thiel. And yes, that is the case. I meant Peter Thiel, and I did at that point confuse him with Elon because, you know, my brain's stupid and 
they're both cool Silicon Valley guys that I look up to, so it made a little switch. <laughs> I'm sure it's good. It's worth pointing out that there's conversation happening over at subreddit, r slash the Bayesian conspiracy, if uh, you like stuff to talk about between episodes here. Looks like on the drugs episode, Jenkins expanded his, uh, or I guess added some notes to the conversation on the episode 49, the spirituality via drugs episode. So if you're interested in seeing more of that from him, you're welcome to check that out there. Yeah, to provide you know a, a balancing view to what I had just said earlier, it is good for Jenkins to be able to say his piece as well. And that is on the subreddit, in the Spirality via Drugs episode, the first comment. Oh, nice. I mentioned the uh, baptizing the dead thing that the Mormons do. And we had somebody, uh, let's see, Hanky USA or Honky USA, I'm not sure how they say it, but uh, on that same episode, they... Uh, they have a lot to go on here, but they talked about some of the dead people that are baptized. And apparently Carl Sagan's on the list. <laughs> That's kind of funny. Yeah, we had a number of people write in, a number of ex-Mormons write in to tell us about uh, Mormon afterlife. And for the most part, uh, it sounds like basically everyone gets a, a heaven or at least a sort of spirit prison where they're not actively tortured or anything. They just sort of uh, hang out until they get... Uh, they get some sort of saving things. Uh, the even even like the worst people uh, on earth, like criminals and horrible people, get a type of afterlife that's not really a hell. They're just trapped in the company of other horrible people, whereas as opposed to being you know actively tormented by God or anyone else, they just have to hang out with each other, which kind of suck. And like the normal people just get sort of you know a nice place, but it isn't like heaven, heaven, you know. Uh, and then, like, the really good people get ultimate awesome bliss heavens and get to become gods of their own universes if they were, like, really cool. Uh, they, the only real hell they have is this thing called the Outer Darkness, in capital letters. And that is where uh, rebels against God go. So literally Satan, uh, the other one-third of the angels that rebelled with Satan, and any people who were Mormons but then left Mormonism. <laughs> because they are in God's presence, but then they left. So they are you know, basically rebels against God, and they get to go to the actual hell hell that's awful called the Outer Darkness. And do they get to get saved? Because uh, I'm pretty sure Carl Sagan was like an, you know, an active campaigner against religion. And that sounds like an enemy of God. I don't think he was a Mormon in life and then no, no, you the church. Oh, yeah, no, but you said that it was for rebels of God or ex-Mormons. Well, rebels against God are literally people who uh, were Satan or those angels or people who were Mormons and left. Okay, so that's the only three. It's not like, say, if you and I made it our life's goal to deconvert as many Mormons as possible. Only the Mormons who got deconverted would go to hell, not us. Right, exactly. Because we were actually in the presence of God and then rebelled, whereas we were never blessed enough to be in the presence of God, so we couldn't rebel against him. Cool. (laughs) Which, I mean, I guess it sort of makes sense because it's not too tortury for everyone else, but it has very strong penalties for being an apostate, which most religions do. They generally hate people who were that religion and then left far more than anyone else. So, okay, there we go. Perfect. <laughs> um, I'm not seeing a whole lot of other feedback, but I thought we were behind on some stuff. Anything jumping out at you? Uh, no, that is about it. And since we took some time with uh, host feedback, I think this is a decent time to stop. Works for me.
Hey folks, this is Kyle, audio editor for the Bayesian Conspiracy Podcast. Due to the aforementioned chopped up nature of today's episode, we neglected to record an intro for our guest. So we now present to you our interview with Robert McIntyre. Please enjoy. All right, well, in that case, uh, welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Steven Zuber. I'm Minyash Brodsky. And I'm Robert McIntyre. Robert, thanks for coming back on. It's a real pleasure. I don't know if Inyash mentioned last time, uh, something got garbled in the audio when we were, I guess, between saving the file, recording and saving the file, and it came through kind of like uh, if you're shouting through a wood chipper the whole time. Uh, so at the very least, we'll be co- I think it would be useful to cover some of the same stuff as last time. But before that, I wanted to hear about the uh, the talk that you gave at the... Future of Humanity Institute? That's the one. Well, that was the small one. Uh, that was their, their vision conference, I believe, um, a couple of weekends ago. And uh, they invited a bunch of people over. Um, uh, the talk that I was part of was, you know, kind of what the future of mind uploading was going to look like, and uh, was able to discuss some some interesting stuff. Um, what was your take on what the future is going to look like? They were trying to compare it to Hansen's book, uh, Age of EM, and you know, I think one of the main things there is he thinks that AI is not going to really happen uh, before we get the uploading. Um, I don't see how you can't get some type of AI, um, especially if you, you know, have gotten to the point where you, you're beginning to really understand how the brain works. Um, it seems to me like if you can upload a mouse, uh, that gets you certainly some amazing tricks to do with our current neural networks, uh, which may lead to something that's got some fairly robust intelligence. Um, so that's the main uh, conceit that he makes in that book. Uh, probably because he's wanting to explore, you know, what would happen in the absence of AI, like many science fiction books do. Um, and AI makes it very hard to predict because um, then you're trying to look past kind of the singularity, right? Um, and but I do think that's somewhat unrealistic. So that was that was the main thing I had. I agree. I we talked with Robin about his book Age of M actually. Well, it was I think just in general, but we talked about Age of M, and that seems to be one of the, I guess. Uh, priors to the book that if AI happens, it's too slow of a takeoff for it to subvert the age of M from happening for a couple of years. I think he's been a proponent of slow takeoff for as far back as I've been following his stuff. Oh, speaking of AI takeoff, have you guys seen the new, uh, what was it? Uh, not AlphaGo, but AlphaZero? AlphaGo Zero. Yeah, I read about that on a post by Yudkowsky responding to some letter of criticism. Okay, yeah. It took, like, what, four hours to go from doesn't know the rules of the game to superhuman playing? Well, not superhuman, yeah, but it was in Stockfish, which was our best uh, was our best AI for playing chess. So not only did it go yeah. past all of, of the many hundreds of years of human experience, uh, you know, with masters teaching their students on how to play chess, uh, but then it also ended up... Um, beating the best AIs we were able to build uh, to play chess yeah. as well. I thought it. I thought it played Go. That was for AlphaGo, but for AlphaZero, they used chess for it, and there was like no outside influences at all on it. It was just given the rules of the game, and basically that's it. And with just that, it played against itself until it figured out chess and was able to break the game so that it would never lose. It's pretty good. 
it only took four hours. It's insane. And first of all, not only how many hundreds of years of humans working to perfect the game, but after that, decades of programmers making computer-playing chess programs, which were basically programmed with special knowledge, things like uh, opening moves and gambits and what to do when this situation arises, looking forward X number of moves in advance. And then all of those decades of work and programming was just blown away by a learning algorithm in four hours. It is, I think, as Eliezer said, a indication that his idea of fast AI takeoff is more likely because once they figured out how to do the learning in a good learning algorithm, it just demolished all previous work. So I'm not a, an AI programmer, but isn't it a different sort of problem? Because you can, you can program in the rules of chess, now go forth and figure out how to kick ass at it. But can you program in the rules of the universe and say, go in and figure out how to kick ass at that as easily? Not obviously as, as easily, but is that even the same kind of problem? I don't know, but it's pretty it's pretty impressive that you can blow past like we cared about chess a lot and we spent hundreds of years like trying to get good at it and um you know this thing just blew past it from nothing to you know better than everything in 4 hours it's, it's very impressive I think. Oh, I totally agree. The main point being that it managed to self-improve over just 4 hours starting from scratch rather than incrementing further from previous efforts. The whole slow AI takeoff argument depends on an AI slowly incrementally learning at a rate where we can see what's going on and maybe react. Whereas this kind of shows that once an AI learns how to learn in the proper way, it can take off at an, at an exponential rate far faster than we're able to understand what's happening. And in the process, just cruises right past everything that we had thought that we'd figured out over centuries and or decades. Hmm. So I get like these mixed feelings whenever I think about super AI like impending. And, you know, I think the same feelings everyone else gets, but uh, it's hard for me to be stoked, but it's also super exciting, right? Right. It's terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Although it's I mean, chess is still a pretty circumscribed type of, uh, type of game, right? So uh, yeah. just because it can, can blow it away that quickly uh, may or may not have a lot of bearing on what it can do in general, but still... Um, right. You know, I think there are a lot of other games that humans play that are very important economically um, that, you know, you may very well see an AI go from totally not competitive in those fields to better than any, not only anything we could do, but anything we could work with a computer to do uh, very rapidly. And that, that itself could be a big deal. Yeah, well, Charles Strauss has explored this concept before in his books as well, but uh, a lot of our financial instruments, financial markets can be gamified and see viewed as a game. And uh, AI bent on learning those could, in theory, come up with financial instruments that we cannot even really understand what it's doing and throw the entire economy into complete chaos. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, it could be nuts. <laughs> and yeah, chess is really a limited arena, but I think it's a proof of concept that if you get the learning algorithms right, they can really advance a lot faster than a lot of people have been thought possible. I, I think you're right. It's... Uh... It's both exciting and daunting. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Fingers crossed. Hooray. <laughs> so that's the thing. Do you think they're, they're going to be, when they go to like hit enter on these machines and start things going, do you think they're going to be like popping champagne and be like, all right, guys, we're all excited? Or do you think they're going to be like just getting wasted and thinking, hopefully this doesn't kill everybody? Well, I hope if that's their actual fear, then they wouldn't press the button in the first place. Yeah, you're probably right. I guess. Yeah. Yeah, you got to press. You got to go for it. You got you to gotta make that money, right? 
Yeah, I think the button will be pressed by other people who are afraid that if they don't press it, other people will beat them to it. And it can't be that bad, right? Well, that's that's almost worse than the two options I laid out. Because <laughs> your two options are like, either we get it right or, you know... Or we have no idea, not like, not like we'd better hurry. Right, because, you know, what if the Chinese get it before we do? And then the Chinese would have this huge advantage and maybe take over the world. And, and we don't like that. We want hegemony. Back in the day, we had a little bit more primitive morality, I think, where, you know, the king is good because he's so powerful, right? And this concept of that you can be good and not powerful, and, like, just because you're powerful and can kill everyone doesn't necessarily mean that you're right or good or moral. I think that's a thing we had to figure out over time that wasn't as obvious at the beginning. And I think a lot of the people, so the people I've talked to, you know, that are actually working on AI still have this notion you know, where they think if the AI is, is better at playing some of these games, then it deserves to be able to take over everything. Um, and there's this kind of fatalism that, that's part of that. Uh, so, <laughs> anyways. Yeah, not a fan of that that thesis, I guess. Yeah, something... That's that's just straight up if might, you know, might makes right. If, if it can kick my ass, it deserves to be the boss of me, right? Fuck that. <laughs> I think there's a bit of an is-ought distinction here, because something that can kick my ass will be the boss of me, but I don't think that's necessarily a good thing, so maybe if I can stop it from coming into existence, I would like to do that. Agreed. Okay, well, uh, before I forget, I want to do a kind of quick recap of our last conversation. So, talk about, I think, the the small animal um, brain freezing award, I'm sure there's a better name for it, preservation award. Sorry, I'm not running on all cylinders today. I should have mentioned that at the beginning of the call. So, uh, But I'm definitely good enough to talk, just not lead. So let's talk to talk about the Small Mammal Brain Preservation Prize um, and how you know this uh, aldehyde-stabilized uh, crowd preservation technique that I made uh, managed to win that prize. Uh, the Large Mammal Prize is still um, outstanding, but uh, I've seen some of the early results for it, and they're looking fairly good. Um, so uh, I do hope that that will be one. Um, and then uh, we went into more talking about, you know, brain preservation, mind uploading, um, you know, what that future sort of looks like, uh, what you would probably want in a brain preservation technology now. We, we touched on some of Alcor's stuff, um, and, and that was most of the conversation. You know, some of the things I'm trying to do uh, for Nectome, I guess. So maybe this is a bit of a personal question, but I'm assuming that you would like have your brain preserved using the process where it gets fixated first. The, uh, uh, what was it called? The aldehyde stabilized crowd preservation. Yeah, I'm assuming you'd prefer to have your brain preserved using that method, right? Well, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting thing. I think that, that what we need is a technique that's been validated to preserve the connectome. And in lieu of that validation, it's, it's really uh, sort of a crapshoot as to what you're going to use to preserve yourself. Um, the aldehyde stabilized crowd preservation technique um, I think would have very serious uh, problems being applied to someone uh, post-mortem uh, more than a couple of hours. And, you know, that is the one thing that the current cryopreservation techniques probably have over it, is that you can still kind of use them even, like, five hours afterwards. Um, on the other hand, those have not been demonstrated to preserve the connectome. So, you know, what are the metrics of success that you want to use to judge your brain preservation protocol or to say that, you know, this preservation protocol is better than this other preservation protocol? Um, what Hayworth did for the Brain Preservation Prize is he said, 
you know, the first metric of success ought to be the ability to preserve the connectome. So for every synapse in the brain, can you trace that synapse back to an originating neuron or can you not trace that? Um, because uh, what neuroscience tells us is that memories are stored in the connectome. And so if you're disrupting the connectome to the point where it, it's not recognizable or it's not traceable, um, then it's likely you're not preserving memory. Now, maybe there's some other redundant mechanism that's encoding memories, but it, it does seem like the connectome is a good place to, to start. And so under that metric, uh, there is no human brain preservation technique currently in existence uh, that, will, that has been proven to preserve a connectome. So why, first of all, doesn't it work uh, more than a couple hours after death? Well, uh, because fixatives uh, are being delivered through perfusion, and if you are trying to do this a couple hours after death, um, you're going to have a lot of problem with blood coagulation. Um, and the process of fixation makes that much worse, and so you're going to have uh, emboli, you know, blockages in the in the bloodstream uh, that are going to cause a lot of trouble with perfusion. Uh, with the cryoprotective perfusion, although that's still, you know, very difficult to use after death, um, at least the cryoprotectants don't actively coagulate blood. In fact, they sort of do the opposite. They they will help to expand your blood vessels and shrink your red blood cells to get things flowing again. Um, and so, you know, I, I definitely think that as far as it goes, it's easier to establish flow uh, with the current techniques than it would be with aldehyde-stabilized cryopreservation. So two follow-up questions then. The first one being that if you were to die in ideal conditions, like at a hospital where you can unplug and know the time of death, would you prefer the cryoprotectant or the, uh, the fixative method? You know, right now it seems like it might be a better option. Um, on the other hand... I really think that anything that's going to be used on a human's got to be validated to preserve uh, the connectome. But the cryoprotectant method isn't validated either, right? Well, I think they, they should also be validated. Um, <laughs> I really, it's, it's kind of surprising to me that, that it hasn't been done uh, because there are people who donate their bodies to science all day long, okay? And you could certainly um, have someone who has no expectation of future revival and you have no fiduciary duty to preserve their brain, uh, but nevertheless they want to donate their body to advanced science, and, and you would pay to acquire their body post-mortem under similar conditions as a normal Alcor patient, um, and you do your preservation technique, and then you slice their brain um, into a million slices and uh, check very carefully at many different points to see how well you did at preserving the brain. Um, oh, and I don't see why Alcor doesn't do that. Does Alcor have the budget to do that sort of thing? Because I don't think they're running on a large margin. Well, that's a that's a that's a personal problem, now, isn't it? Um, and nevertheless, I, that's the type of thing I would expect from a robust, well-validated uh, brain preservation technology. And and really, I would say Hayworth would agree, or 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 definitely say that that would be almost a requirement before you were to 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 use this on people, right? Would it be reasonable to extrapolate from, say, I guess, doing standard crab preservation on a small mammal, like a rat or a rabbit or something, and then looking at the connectome that way? Well, yeah, you could do that. Um, but even those studies aren't that conclusive, right? I mean, there's never been uh, using just cryoprotectants uh, images that demonstrate good connectome preservation. And that seems like such a huge example of civilizational inadequacy to me, or maybe not the entire civilization, but at least our subculture part of the civ uh, civilization. 
Like, no one has gone and founded some sort of startup to try to find funding for these things and address these concerns. Well, fortunately, we have a startup that's addressing these concerns at this very moment. Um, and I have, in the last uh, couple of months, managed to raise uh, quite a bit of funding for this. Um, I actually just closed... Uh, this is Next Home. Um, okay. So, uh, you know, I just closed a, a pretty large uh, funding round uh, for Next Home. Um, yeah, so Nectome uh, recently got into uh, Y Combinator. Congrats. And uh, we're in the January, we're in the winter uh, 2018 uh, batch, and uh, we're going to be working on developing a validated uh, brain preservation protocol, and we're working to preserve the first human connectome. Holy shit, this is, you, you are the answer to my prayers. <laughs> well, we will see. I'm going to give it a good shot to try and... Um, I think there's a, there's a good chance to to reboot some of the discussions that are being had around preservation, um, more around neuroscience rather than around cryobiology, and uh, you know towards that end, uh, we're working on on actually preserving uh, human connectomes in a research context, um, which I I have definite plans to do. Um, hopefully, within the next three months, we'll have the first human connectome preserved, um, but we'll see. I just want to clarify that my prayers are a very low bar. All I want is for someone to be putting some money into looking into this thing. So that is what I mean when I say you are the answer to my prayers. That Not that I expect you to actually preserve my brain or anything right now, but just that someone is finally looking into actually doing this. It's interesting, you know, the, the aldehyde stabilized cryopreservation uh, actually appeared in, in a book uh, 30 years ago, uh, Engines of Creation by, by Drexler. And uh, almost in exactly the way that it's done today, uh, you know, glutaraldehyde for an initial stabilization, ethylene glycol for crop protection. Yeah, there's a couple of minor issues when you actually try to do it um, that you run into, but not nothing too huge. Um, and you know that that works amazingly well at preserving the connectome. Of course, that's at the expense of uh, totally abolishing all biological activity. Um, because the, the glutaraldehyde is basically gluing uh, all the proteins together. But on the other hand, uh, you're preserving that structure, which is, is thought by neuroscience to encode memories and personality. So uh, to me, it makes sense as a trade-off. And uh, you know, I think that, that the next thing that makes sense is uh, kind of twofold. You've got this approach towards making this actually scale up to humans and be a very robust um, procedure that's actually available, and and two is is really demonstrating memory preservation, right? I've demonstrated I can preserve the connectome, uh, but what we all really care about is can we preserve memory? And so uh, I think there's some profitable experiments that could be done uh, today uh, that that help us answer these questions uh, for memory preservation, and uh, I think we ought to be doing both. I, I think that's really awesome. I mean, it's going to be super reassuring to be able to put you know, good estimates of cryopreservation working into double digits. Yeah, I'm with Inyash. This is the kind of thing that, you know, I was just, I was talking with my girlfriend earlier today that, you know, that the realization that we all had at some point growing up that like nobody really knows what they're doing and adults are all just fucking around. Um, but there's no such thing as like, you know, well known, you know, well-rounded understanding out all the picture, I guess, smart controllers, you know, like your doctors leave the room after you talk to them so they can go Google your symptoms, that kind of thing. And I'm, and I, I'd even said I'm still kind of letting that percolate into the rest of my beliefs about everything, and yet 
I realized at the beginning of this conversation that I didn't really do that uh, when signing up for crowd preservation. Like I just kind of assumed, okay, well, and I guess in their defense and my defense, they were probably doing the the best that they could, right? They weren't trying, right? You want to do absolutely. No, I totally agree. Like they weren't they weren't trying to do better than what they could do, but they were doing what they could. So there's at least that. But yeah, uh, I'm all in favor of this getting uh, leveled up. Considerably. I'm probably the most pessimistic cryonicist that still actually bothered to sign up. I mean, I, I did <laughs> sign up for cryonics, but when I um, did that, I thought it was about a 1% chance of working, even if done under ideal conditions. And that was barely worth it, honestly, for, for me to actually sign up. Um, and, you know, since then, I've even adjusted that a bit more downwards, just given um, that people die in very inconvenient ways. Um, which, you know, degrades it even further. So, so practically, I think it's like more of a 0.1% chance, which, yeah, it's better than your other options, uh, but it's still not a very good option. And, you know, why not put some serious resources into making that more like 90%, right? At which point, I think a lot more people are going to see uh, the benefit uh, for preservation, and it's, it's less of a long shot and more of a thing that is risky, but you, you can bank on it, you know? If it was more likely that this could work than, for example, an experimental cancer drug, right? Uh, I think you're gonna see a lot of people wanting to be preserved um, and, and seeing the value in it. Oh, Steven, did you realize that we have assisted suicide laws here in Colorado? No, uh, did that go through, huh? Yeah, I was just hearing on the radio about a study they did about the people in Colorado who chose to go through with the assisted suicide. So here we will be able to choose the time and location of our death if we know we're close to it. And therefore, it'll be under ideal conditions, hopefully. Yeah, I do think that if if you want to do serious brain preservation, um, it's got to be an end-of-life type of option. Um, And it's got to be scheduled, just like any other major medical intervention is generally scheduled. Um, you know, you don't have a doctor that says, well, I'll do a quadruple bypass on you, but, you know, let's wait till after you die, and then let's try to get you real fast and, you know, and deal with it at that point. Um, normally, you know, you kind of come into the doctor's office and get your surgery done. And maybe not necessarily after you die, but we're going to wait until you have a heart attack on the street and then rush you into the hospital real quick and do the surgery then. And, you know, there's a place for emergency brain preservation as a service, and I, I think that's a, a worthwhile thing to be researching, but uh, it's not clear to me why that needs to be the first step towards getting brain preservation available to people. I think that's yeah, what you have when it's a mature science, you know? Yeah, that should be a last-ditch effort just in case you didn't die in a nice, controlled fashion the way that we would prefer. So, so what does a serious brain preservation um, project look like, right? I mean, you've got... Uh, independent validation of the technique, okay? And so the technique should be done on animals first um, and demonstrate that it can preserve connectome. And you need some consensus amongst, uh, you know, the people who who ought to know, uh, which is, you know, connectomicists, uh, neuroscientists in general, uh, people who are involved in kind of doing simulations of neural tissue right now that here are the things that you need to do to preserve memory, um, or at least here are the things you need to do to be likely to preserve memory, right? Um, and then the technique itself should then be validated, you know, after having been validated on animals, it should be validated on uh, donated human bodies, right? So that you can work out what the limits are for being able to preserve a human brain. You know, how many minutes after death can you succeed? Um, you know, what are the pitfalls to the procedure? You know, get a really good risk profile 
uh, preferably you've done this on 20 or 50 donated humans, right? Um, yeah. And then uh, at that point, uh, it may make sense to have a preservation that's offered uh, strictly at like a single location um, and using end of life uh, kind of criteria uh, for individuals. And then each individual would be uh, individually validated for preservation, uh, probably through a brain biopsy or another appropriate surrogate, and then independently confirmed, um, sort of like the Brain Preservation Prize, you know, it was, the, it was independently confirmed for these uh, animal preservations um, that the connectome is actually preserved. And then there ought to be consequences for not preserving the connectome, right? If you say to someone, you know, what we're selling you is connectome preservation, right? Um, and then you fail to meet that level of standard, um, it's actually a good thing from a business perspective that there'll be financial consequences for that, um, as opposed to that it's just at a best efforts um, level of service, because then, you know, the incentives to improve it are not necessarily there. Right. So do you already have the funding for these first stages? But we do. Um, and I don't want to go into to, too much details on, on the funding right now for the company, but suffice it to say, um, we've actually managed to raise uh, some appreciable amount of money, uh, even since the last time we talked. And uh, the plan right now is that we will preserve a human connectome uh, before uh, the end of Y Combinator. And so nice. our plans are in motion to do this. Man, that's awesome. I'm just kind of absorbing that fact. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's really, really cool to put it very mildly. I was hoping yeah. to get the money raised, uh, you know, before the start of January, and uh, we managed to do that at this point. So uh, we're ready to rock and roll. Fucking awesome! How long do you, how long will this take you? Do you think? You know, super optimistically, we do it January. Um, Wait, what? In one month? Yeah, I'm hoping to do it next month. Uh, you know, uh, more realistically. I could see it going into February, um, and then Donate's March, so yeah, I've, I've got a pretty tight schedule here. Yeah. And then, you know, there's still one or two human brains that will have been preserved, um, and then we'll independently evaluate their preservation uh, through uh, groups like, uh, you know, at Princeton, at uh, the BPF, at MIT, that sort of thing. And I'm assuming that the ultimate goal is to have a proven and reliable cryonic service to provide to customers once this is all over with? You know, it's something where we are, I, I think that there's a place for a service like that. Um, and it's something that we're, we're looking at. Um, but I think that the, what's really important right now is to determine, you know, whether you can preserve a human connectome. There's a lot of uh, questions about that still, even with the animal work. I mean, you know, I mean, I got the, the small mammal prize. I don't have the large mammal prize yet. Um, yeah. And so, you know, it really needs to be validated on humans before you start talking about, you know, whether you could use it on, on humans. Um, but I do hope to have the answers to those questions answered, you know, sooner rather than later, because I do think it's a very important option. And, you know, looking into the, the further future, like 10 years from now, um, I really think that this ought to be considered a basic human right, that, that if you want to be yeah. able to be preserved, um, then you should be able to do that, right? I think that, I, I love the idea, but that sounds optimistic to me. It's not even a, it's debatable whether it's human right to receive medical care in general in some parts of the, the world, including the United States, right? But, but I certainly like that, the idea. Is, uh, I had a quick question. Was there any major 
anticipated hurdles between a small animal and a human-sized brain, uh, other than the size scaling up? Or is that in itself a much bigger hurdle than I'm guessing? You know, I don't think so, but those are the details for all of this stuff. Um, to give you an idea, uh, it took me um, seven months to get it to work on rabbits, um, you know, to perfect the, the chemistry and the, you know, building the machines and such, and then to then scale that about tenfold um, to a pig brain. Uh, rabbit brain is about 12 grams, and a pig brain is 60 to 80 grams, so it's, you know, it's about 10 times bigger or so. Um, the, to build that, to design and build that machine took me five hours. It took me one evening, and it worked the first time. Um, so I, I do hope that we can do another factor of 10 and make this work for human brains. Um, and I do think that one very important area of research that's you know been neglected for far too long is uh, you know what is the actual time course over which the human connectome degrades? Um, nobody knows, believe it or not. Um, you know whether the connectome starts degrading 30 minutes after death, an hour after death, two hours after death, etc. Um, there are certainly complications that arise when you're trying to do post-mortem brain preservation, which is how our initial trial is going to go um, that we're doing you know fairly soon. Uh, and so I can see that uh, throwing a wrench into the works, uh, but we will see. Uh, we will we will definitely see. I I think that overall it shouldn't be too challenging. But, you know, the world has a way of making uh, things much more difficult for you. Yeah. Is there, uh, in the ultimate goal of the project, are you looking just to do the scientific research on this sort of thing? Or are you looking to maybe one day be one of the early founders of this sort of service and maybe also push on like the political front to make this be considered a basic human right? There, there needs to be uh, a foundation that deals with... Uh, lobbying for the rights of digital persons and, and persons that you know have been uh, restored. Um, there definitely needs to be work done on outreach um, to explain why preserving yourself uh, makes sense at both an individual level and at a at a cultural level. I mean, um, I see this as being something that's uh, important for preserving the memory of humanity uh, because every generation, you know, we kind of lose. Uh, the knowledge and the wisdom that was gained from a lifetime of existing, all right? Yeah, we're just fucking treading water, repeating the same mistakes over and over again. Well, and, and I think we keep doing that because we keep forgetting uh, a lot of the lessons that we learn. Yeah, as we lose the people who learned them. Well, and it sucks, though, because we get more powerful every generation from technology, which does accumulate, uh, but we don't get more wise every generation, and that is not good for the future. Um, yeah. we really need to deal with this and you know we're, there are people that are alive today um, where you know there's only maybe 12 people that speak various languages okay uh, and when they die we lose that connection to our past and that's, that's a real shame it would be much better if we could preserve that connection to our past um, so you know it, this, this is a very important uh, uh, this is very important from a cultural level and from an individual level, you know, you, how great would it be to be able to talk to your great-great-grandmother, right? Um, and, you know, you can't do that, uh, but we may be in a position in the very near future to be able to offer that to future generations. So, uh, it's very important. Somebody needs to be able to tell that story, and, uh, you know, we are, are definitely looking at what people want in, in preservation uh, right now. 
And uh, I think you got to be very careful, though, about getting the science right and getting the, the preservation quality right and being able to clearly convey what you can and can't do, right? Even a perfect um, implementation of aldehyde stabilized cryopreservation for human brains is not going to be able to guarantee that it can preserve memory, all right? It's going to be able to guarantee it can preserve your connectome, all right? And uh, there is still a debate as to whether that preserves memory, although I would say that, that a lot of the core understanding of neuroscience is that it ought to preserve memory. So that's where we're at right now. So, so in addition to, um, you know, getting this to work for humans, uh, I think there's got to be some serious research into proving or disproving this idea of, of memory preservation. Because uh, it's not going to do anybody any good if it doesn't actually preserve memories. Right. And all those things. You do? Yeah. Oh, okay, great. Because I, it would just it would be really sad if someone went and did all this research and did the science, and then no one took it and ran with it and provided it as an actual service. And I do understand that some people just want to do the science, and that's what they have a passion for, and they don't want to go about trying to start a new business. If you are willing to take up that mantle, that makes me much more hopeful for the future. Well, I didn't get in this business to to not help people, right? So yeah. uh, it would be it would make me very sad too if you just had the research done and it didn't end up actually doing anything worthwhile. Well, you can always hope someone else takes it over. I believe that a lot of people in the sciences do do that sort of thing where they're like, hey, here's the research I did and the things I found. Now, someone please take this and make it available and do cool stuff with it. I don't think that really ever works. So you gotta, you gotta actually make it work yourself if you want your your technology to to win. Fucking heroic responsibility mindset, right there. But it was because uh, so okay. Robert Edinger wrote the prospect of immortality in the fifties. Okay, and he was like, what if we freeze people and like maybe that'll preserve them? You know, look at the massive uh, advances that have been made in cryobiology over the last couple of years. You know, we're probably like ten years out from reversible cryopreservation and probably the ability to undo whatever freezing damage we're doing now. And he thought that was such a compelling idea uh, that he just had to publish it, and uh, there would be massive worldwide government programs in five years to, to offer this to anybody who wanted it. Um, and you know, the reality is nothing happened at all. And you know, five years later, he finally decided, well, let's try to start something uh, to make it happen. And I think that's much more realistic way the technology happens. Um, yeah. And, you know, really, if, if your thing is legit, um, why would you not go and make a lot of money off of it, right? Why do you want someone else to do that? That's a good point. And if you're not willing to do that, maybe that means your thing's not legit after all. Yeah, I think it also takes a lot of business acumen to make something like that work because I personally would not want to start a business because, God, the headache. I'd be looking for the easy halfway point where I could just be like, hey, Alcor, hey, Cryonics Institute, I found this other cool way to do it. Do you guys want to offer this as an option to your new customers? Maybe they'd be pressured into that if they had a competitor that was offering that. Right, yeah. I think that'd be cool too because uh, they already are working on sort of the, camp the, the campaign stuff. So, A lot of people are very hesitant about um, using a preservation technique like this because you are you know, um, totally abolishing biological activity. The most realistic mechanism, you know, I can personally see for uh, extracting memories from a preserved brain would be destructive scanning and uh, emulation uh, in a kind of simulation environment, right, on a computer. 
And a lot of people don't like the idea of that, um, or they feel like that's not really a meaningful continuation of them. Uh, and so for that reason, I, I think a lot of people are not necessarily going to want to go for something like aldehyde stabilized cryopreservation. Yeah, but if you're restored in a simulation, you can always have that simulation hooked up to a cool cyborg body and interact with the real world, too. Well, you absolutely could. <laughs> uh, or you could print a new brain, you know, it's patterned off the blueprint of the old brain and, uh, and yeah. do that. And of course, you know, I say that kind of flippantly. I mean, that's a, an amazingly advanced application of technology. Um, on the other hand, you know, I could see a pathway towards doing many of these things, but I don't see a pathway if you don't have that blueprint. If you have that, that data that defines what your memories are, uh, going to be very difficult. The comparison here would be like, let's say you have a book and you want to preserve that book, right? And so, you know, one of your options is you mix up a bunch of epoxy and you're going to pour it over that book and the whole thing's going to turn to a solid block of plastic and you're going to glue the ink to the pages and the pages to themselves uh, and you have this totally immobilized cube of just plastic, right? Uh, on the other hand, you can preserve the book by just sort of, you know, putting it in a, in a nice environment, right? Like a freezer. Yeah, but and you're going to end up getting some holes in the pages, though, uh, from, you know, just decay, uh, and the ink's going to fade a bit. But you'll still be able to open that book, right, and look at some of the pages, which are, are going to be very fragile. Um, I would say that the bigger those lacunas in that page become, right, these holes in the text... Uh, it rapidly goes from, you know, oh, maybe we can figure out what this letter was, or maybe we can figure out what this word is, to you'll never be able to figure out what that sentence is, right? Or what that paragraph is. Uh, you've really lost the information. And, you know, while it seems at the face of it that this block of plastic is almost impossible to interrogate or, or do anything with, uh, you could certainly imagine going through it with an x-ray and then printing a new copy of that book, and now you can completely read that story again. Um, if I told you, hey, you know, we can give you, or you have two options. I can give you uh, the original Library of Alexandria on a thumb drive, okay? Uh, or we'll give you the ruins of, of the Library of Alexandria, but, you know, only a quarter of the books are intact at all, and even those are highly damaged. But they're the original books. Uh, which one would you guys rather have? Sounds like a no-brainer. Yeah, well, from a practical point of view, I might take the originals because I think those would be worth a lot more on the market and I think that possibly all the knowledge that was in there originally has been recreated over the millennia and you know likely please surpassed uh, but I absolutely take your point yeah that's what I was gonna say that was my first impulse is you could sell the the real books for something but I mean for the spirit of the question <laughs> yeah to to address the spirit of your question I would actually prefer to have all the information on a thumb drive rather than only pieces of the information in their original form and I would say that you know it's interesting because the the story is what matters and uh -huh. the originals you can you can ascribe a lot of value to them but um, what we really care about is hearing the voices of the past and that's true. The originals aren't good at giving us those voices of the past, but the the thumb drive is. Yeah, and we could recreate some of the original lost works of fiction and dramas and such that are just completely lost if we had them on thumb drive. I wish the Greeks had, you know, they had this concept of a libation to the gods, where if you have a drink, you're going to pour out part of that drink on the ground, uh, you know, for the gods. I wish they had the same thing for libraries, right, where they take their books and they're going to, you know, 
pour wax on them and turn them into a block of wax and put them in a lead box and toss the lead box into the sea, okay? Because if they had done that, we would have their stories again today. Yeah. It's, it's a shame that they didn't. Yep. Wow. So that is, that is a lot. Do you have like a timeline now for the broader picture, broader strokes of things going forward into the future after this first step here? Yeah, I think that, uh, that there's, there's two main things. We need to get this to work for uh, humans uh, because it would be good to solve a lot of logistical problems uh, around human connectome preservation. And beyond that, there is this big important question of does preserving the connectome preserve memories? And if not, what additional structures in the brain do you need to preserve uh, to preserve memories for future digital emulation? Um, and so attacking both problems, I think, makes a lot of sense. Uh, one was more of a pure research question. One's more of a uh, of a pure engineering question. So uh, I tend to do both. Uh, the human preservation is uh, substantially easier given our current resources. So we're gonna we're going to work on that and demonstrate, you know, kind of a next phase of this brain preservation prize, um, demonstrating a preservation of a human connectome. And then uh, there's a couple of very interesting experiments for memory preservation uh, that I think are just around the horizon. Um, and those are, are approaching memory preservation as kind of like a zero knowledge proof, where you do an experiment that's designed to reveal whether the memories exist or not, um, because you wouldn't be able to complete the experimental outcome without those memories existing. And it gets around some of these problems of understanding exactly how memories are encoded, um, or even uh, you know, being able to trace large amounts of brain tissue, which neither of which we can do currently. Um, and, and so I think those are, those are amazing experiments. Um, and then also, you know, growing a brain on a chip um, as we're we are rapidly developing these technologies. I know there's one company that's developing this technology, so you could have drones that can smell things. Um, and that's really cool. And it seems to, you know, they're, they're doing some major progress for it. We're actually growing real cortical neurons on a, on a chip, and the, there's actually uh, probes, electrical probes, in the neuron cell bodies, you know, that are getting sub-millivolt uh, signaling from these neurons. And then the neurons are kind of exposed to the air, so various things impinge on them and, and cause them to fire in different ways. And it's actually, you know, learning from that neural network that forms uh, what the smells are. Uh, but you could, uh, after many days of, of recording carefully from this neural network, then preserve that network with your preservation technique, scan it with an electron microscope, and if just from the data from the electron microscope, you can emulate it and totally recreate the input-output, you know, the transfer function of that neural network, uh, that's very compelling that your preservation technique is preserving the things you need to replicate computation. Um, the, the zero knowledge proofs are cool because you're able to answer high-level questions like was this mouse afraid of this thing or this other thing? Um, and so those types of experiments are doable with today's technology, and they're important. They actually uh, get you answers to questions about memory preservation, and they allow you to compare one preservation technique against another one. Um, so those are the two things I think are going to be really cool in the future. Um, I uh, should probably get going uh, because uh, both of my <laughs> computers are about to die, and I would love to be able to get to your uh, audio. Uh, but did you have anything to, to wrap it up? Man, I was going to dive into more of the memory stuff, but uh, we'll have to that, save that for another time. Um, yeah, I think you're right. It's, it's worth uh, preserving the memory of this conversation on your computer rather than losing it forever. So I had some more too, but we can hit them up next time. I was wondering if once this next phase of your project is done and you get some results, would you be willing to come back to the show and talk about them some more? 
Absolutely, but you got to show off some of the electron micrographs if I do that. Yeah, no problem. We can put them up on the website. Deal. Beautiful. All right, cool. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and I uh, will let you go. All right, thanks. Have a good day. Thanks a lot, Robert. That's great. Alrighty, so uh, thank you everybody for listening, and well, I hope you had a great Christmas and a happy New Year, and uh, we'll see you all in two weeks. Excellent. Goodbye. Everybody. All right, see ya.